Welcome back to the For My PLJ podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ho. In today's episode, For My PLJ staff member Meredith Miller interviews former PTAB judge and current patent litigator Brian Murphy. They discuss Mr. Murphy's experiences as a PTAB judge and a patent practitioner, the impact PTAB and associate post-grant proceedings have had on patent law, and predictions on how PTAB might evolve in the future. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. <laughs> Meredith Miller, a staff member at the IPLJ at Fordham Law. I'm here with Brian Murphy. Good morning, Meredith. (laughs) Brian Murphy is a partner at Hogg Partners Law Firm in Manhattan. He focuses his practice on AIA post-grant review proceedings before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, also known as PTAB. He also served as a lead administrative patent judge of the PTAB from 2014 to 2017 supervising a section of administrative patent judges and supporting the chief judge as a member of the PTAB management team. Mr. Murphy presided over nearly 200 inter-party reviews, post-grant reviews, and covered business method reviews, drafted more than 60 decisions, and mentored numerous AIA trial section judges. Mr. Murphy has 25 years of experience litigating major patent cases in the federal court and International Trade Commission. He is an alumnus of Fordham Law, where he created the Innovative Patent Practice Skills course. He majored in chemistry during his undergraduate studies at the University of Virginia. And today we're going to be talking about his experiences specifically as a PTAB judge. Sure. Love to talk about that. Yeah. So starting from the beginning of your academic career, could you tell us a little bit about your chemistry and science background and Did you work as a scientist before law school? Sure. Um, You know, most patent attorneys, of course, have either an engineering background or a science background by training. Um, And it is a technology-based type of practice. Uh, As you mentioned, I had an undergraduate degree in chemistry at the University of Virginia. And one of the important things I did when I was an undergraduate is I had a summer job. And I worked at a chemistry and industrial uh, chemical laboratory. It was a division of a company called Dynamit Noble, and we worked with something called phenylglycine, which is a derivative of an amino acid. And I worked with, um, you know, uh, quite a number of PhD scientists uh, in the laboratory. And while I certainly learned a lot, one important lesson I learned is that I decided that I going to get a PhD degree in chemistry and becoming a, a research scientist probably wasn't for me. It was a little bit too a solitary work for me, Um, and it didn't appeal to me as much as I thought it might, and I had always thought about uh, being a lawyer, and so it was was that summer job during college that actually kind of changed my mind, Um, and I decided to go on to pursue the law. And the other thing I did during college, I went to a lecture one evening. Uh, It was not for a class. It was just for... uh, Uh, An alumnus of the university came, she was an attorney, and just talked about what she did being a lawyer and uh, any advice she would give to undergraduate aspiring attorneys. And she said, look, you're going to have to do a lot of writing. One of the crucial skills is to be a a competent professional writer. And so take as many English writing classes as you can and try to work on your craft because that's a lot of what lawyers do. And that was good advice, and so I, I did that as well as finishing my chemistry degree. 
What originally drove your interest in practicing law, and more specifically patent law? Well, as I said, law was in my blood, I really think. And so when I decided to uh, go to law school, I spoke to my father, who was a very experienced guidance counselor uh, in high school uh, outside of New York. And he said, uh, look, you should do your chemistry degree and consider going into the field of patent law because it's a great combination. You can use your technical skill. Uh, and, And he turned out to be very much right on. And I did follow my father's advice. Um, and I talked to a few other people, um, and as it turned out, uh, I graduated uh, from college in 1982, and that happens to be the year that the Federal Circuit was formed. So the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which was the first national appeals court to hear all uh, appeals from district court trials involving patents, uh, they all started to go through the national uh, Federal Circuit instead of the regional circuits. And that was a great change in the patent law, and it drove the demand for patent attorney services, and it raised the profile of patent cases, particularly litigation cases, which is what I was um, primarily interested in. And so it was kind of you know a little bit of luck, good timing. I came out at the right time, and I got in early in, in the modern era of patent law uh, that really started, I, I believe, around the time of the Federal Circuit's formation in 1982. And so... Um, and once I made that decision, it all, all the stars seemed to align for me, and, uh, and, I, and so I stepped into it right away. Sounds like an interesting time to get into patent law. Oh, it was. It was. It was, it was terrific. I mean, don't forget, before that, you had different regional circuits. There was a lot of forum shopping, and frankly, patent cases were not considered uh, that high-end. They were sort of relegated to the uh, technician at being a, tech, a good technician, not necessarily being a good lawyer, certainly not associated with being a trial lawyer. Uh, but the Federal Circuit changed a lot of that, and patent cases in federal courts became uh, more important. Technology became more important. Of course, it drives the economy in many ways. And so it, over the last 40, 50 years, it's just continually been uh, a demand and growth uh, for patent attorneys until arguably the last few years, part of which is attributable to PTAP. <laughs> <laughs> so since you've been practicing, what type of work have you been involved in as a patent attorney? Right. Well, over the course of my career, I've always done a lot of work for pharmaceutical companies, biotechnology companies, chem- chemical companies, as well as a fair amount of medical device work. Um, so and because of my chemistry background, that was a, a, a natural fit, although I have to say uh, some of my colleagues do have PhDs in chemistry or biochemistry or cell biology and are also patent attorneys. Um, in fact, one of the great pleasures of working at the board is that there were so many people who were double qualified in that way, uh, and so it was a lot of fun to, to work with people of that caliber, right? Uh, but in any event, uh, a lot of my work was patent litigation. Uh, trial work, uh, but it also involved a deal due diligence. You know, you mentioned the uh, patent practice skills class, and one of those lectures, one of the sessions we did was uh, what patent lawyers do for companies, uh, either as in-house counsel or outside counsel, uh, doing deal due diligence and cl- issuing clearance opinions uh, when there's a new product under development, and you have to do a patent search to see if there are any blocking patents 
patents you need licenses for, patents you want to challenge, um, uh, things like that. So uh, I've also done plenty of that, as well as uh, since I, I stepped down from the bench to re-enter private practice, I've been doing a lot of uh, really, if you will, consulting, and, and in, particularly in the uh, IPR, uh, the interpartes review and postprint review proceedings uh, based on my experience as a PTAB judge, and also a little bit of mediation. So. Sounds like a pretty diverse practice. Yeah, well, I like it that way. So <laughs> it makes it more interesting. So um, talking about your experiences on PTAB, let's get into that a little bit more. Um, why did you decide to become a PTAB judge? Yeah, well, you know, the, again, timing was, was on my side. Um, the America Invents Act uh, took effect in September 2012. And so that's when the PTAB was formed. And at that time, I was looking to uh, shift gears. And I was, and the, because the PTAB was forming, and the Patent Office realized that there would be uh, there would be new cases that had to be decided by judges, and they were recruiting um, judges with experience, particularly litigation and patent experience. And of course, that was well suited to my experience. So it was a very good match in terms of um, the needs of the board and my experience. It was an opportunity to do public service, which I had not previously done. And I felt an obligation, uh, I think as many Fordham law grads do uh, at some point, is, is to do public service, whether you, know, you work for the uh, government early on or later on. Uh, and so I did not work as a patent examiner, for example. Uh, many of my colleagues at the board did work as patent examiners <clears throat> during the course of their career. I had not done that. Uh, so th that attracted me, um, and I knew that this was going to be a new burgeoning field of practice. I, I knew it then. Um, not everybody did, but some people did, and they've taken full advantage. And so I was very pleased that they selected me and enjoyed every minute of it uh, for four years down in Alexandria. Can you talk about what it's like working as a PTAB judge? Like, take us through a day in the life. Right. So, so first of all, I moved to Alexandria, Virginia, uh, with uh, Professor Glover, my wife, and I also had one of my my younger daughter was in graduate school down at George Washington University. So, uh, she actually lived with us for a year down there. Uh, so, when I got there, um, really a great delight. For me was to be introduced to and meet my new colleagues and I mentioned the recruiting earlier of PTAB judges during the over the I guess four or five years after the PTAB was formed uh, in September 2012 the patent office hired something like 200 new patent judges and so I was one of the early ones and so uh, what you do as a judge particularly with these PTAB proceedings that we've been discussing inter partes review post grant review covered business method review every case uh, that's filed is addressed only to issues of patent validity so you don't deal with issues of infringement damages you don't deal with uh, equitable defenses it's only statutory invalidity uh, and each of the proceedings is a little different which I guess we'll talk about but so if you take it as an example on any given day uh, because your docket is typically dozens of cases you'll be at different phases. And so on a given day, you might uh, have a new case 
where you have to read the petition, and because it's a petitioner's burden of proving the claim's invalid, you have to first assess what kind of evidence they've submitted. Is it sufficient uh, to even institute a review? And that's under an inter partes review, that's a reasonable likelihood standard. So you try to read a lot uh, of the evidence because you have to master the facts, master the evidence, and be a good objective uh, fact finder. And so, that, so you'll, you'll spend a good portion of your day doing that. Uh, another case might have been instituted. Parties have a discovery dispute or one party wants to file a motion. And so you have to ask the board for a conference call. And typically, uh, the three judges get on the conference call. Uh, one judge leads the discussion uh, with the parties. And you, you hash out whatever the issue is. And so you'll spend some of your day uh, on the teleconference with the parties. Um, in another case, you'll have to confer with your two colleagues about the merits of the case and try to see if there's consensus uh, either on the first stage of a case, which is whether you institute a review, right? There's two stages to all of these uh, post-grant review proceedings. The first stage is, is there sufficient evidence to institute a review? Uh, and so you try to build consensus and uh, with you, you need to build consensus with your, your two panelists. There's a lot of give and take. You typically have a conference call for an hour, hour and a half uh, on any given case and decide whether you want to institute review. Um, and so for those cases that go forward, then you'll issue a schedule. And uh, as I say, if the parties have discovery disputes or motion practice, you might talk to them about it. And then you get ready for the oral hearing. And so, uh, again, you have a pre-hearing conference with the judges uh, and with the parties. Uh, so one day uh, you might have to schedule oral argument for half of the day or all of the day uh, in the board hearing rooms in Alexandria, Virginia. And so that could be part of your day. Uh, you typically, uh, the judges, the panel of three judges will typically uh, recess and confer immediately after the conclusion of oral hearing to decide the case and decide whether there's any dissent or whether any issue needs further development before a final decision can be reached. And then uh, you'll spend a lot of your time drafting that decision. So you'll spend a good part of your day either drafting an institution decision, uh, what, deciding whether or not to institute, and then if you do institute, you'll spend part of your day uh, drafting a final written decision, uh, which then goes up on appeal to the federal circuit. And so. Any of those things can happen in a given day, which which keeps you pretty pretty busy and active. Seems like there's quite a bit of legal writing involved in being a judge as well. Yes, one thing I learned, I, I should mention that the PTAB judges uh, don't have direct administrative support, so you don't have a secretary, a legal secretary, or a law clerk. And so the judges do their own writing uh, from scratch. Uh, so you have to be an efficient, professional, competent writer. Uh, and, and you spend a, probably most of your time doing that, reading the briefs and writing uh, your decisions, and e even motion decisions on motions or, uh, you know, what we call interlocutory disputes. You have to issue orders. And so, again, the kind of thing where if you were a federal district court judge, you might have uh, one of your law clerks do that type of thing, at least in draft form. Uh, we, the PTAB judges don't have that luxury, so you draft everything yourself. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, most people don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the very few negatives of the job I might add. As you mentioned, a lot of PTAB judges have science or engineering backgrounds. 
do PTAB judges deal with patents mainly in their specific area of art, or do they see patents in a wide variety of areas? The PTAB judges, as a general rule, uh, will have experience in the art, which forms the subject matter basis of any given case or any given patent challenge. Um, at a minimum, the board tries to ensure that at least two of the three judges have relevant technical experience and background um, uh, to deal with the technical issues of the case. And uh, they're largely successful at doing that. But that's part of the reason they had so many cases come in uh, from 2013 now, so close to 2,000 a year uh, have been filed. I think it averages maybe 1,600, 1,700 per year. Uh, and so you needed a lot of judges with diverse uh, backgrounds. So th that is a particular requirement of being the PTAB judge, that you have real in-depth technical experience in a given area. So in my position, after a year at the board, I became what's called the lead judge. So I had administrative uh, supervisory responsibility for a team of judges, 15 judges. And my team, it was based on technical subject matter. So they were all uh, experienced in biotech, chemistry, pharmaceuticals, that type of thing. Um, and we had two sections of judges in, in those disciplines. And then we had multiple other sections of judges with uh, expertise in other disciplines, mechanical, uh, engineers, electrical engineers, computer science, all, all of the, the major art uh, units uh, that you would expect. Um, and so technical expertise is, is an important aspect of of the, of the hiring process or the selection process, but also, of course, of doing the job uh, well. Well, I can, I can also add that on occasion, and I have certainly done some cases that are not in my sweet spot, so to speak. I've done mechanical cases or electromechanical cases. Um, and, you know, you do a little bit of outside reading to, to make sure you understand the basics. But most importantly, the, it's the duty of the, uh, of the attorneys who appear before the board, as they would for any in any court before any judge, to, to provide a clear, thorough, technical tutorial on the subject matter at issue uh, so that the judges have the information they need to make an informed and competent um, decision. And my experience was that, by and large, the attorneys who appeared before us were quite good at doing that. Uh, and did a very good job, and so that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, you can uh, read the deposition testimony where counsel cross-examine the experts on their declarations, which helps, mm -hmm. uh, and then you also have the opportunity to ask questions as a judge at an oral hearing. So all of those things help, even for the cases where um, it may not be something you've had a lot of experience with. Uh, of course, the patent law is, is always uh, uh, an important aspect of deciding the case, and the judges are experts in the law. And, of course, you have assistance of counsel for particular points of law that apply in any given case. So that cuts across all cases, and all judges uh, have that uh, background as well. So, so you said you were um, the lead judge for a group that dealt with biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. Of course, this is an area that is experiencing a great deal of innovation right now. How do you keep up to date with all of the developments in this field? Well, there's so much information. It's actually become quite difficult because the key skill is to separate what's useful and relevant from what's not. Um, but, for example, 
just on the law, particularly cases impacting the PTAB, um, I get at least two different morning emails every single morning at 7.30 with uh, case updates, uh, case highlights, uh, important decisions that have occurred, uh, as well as any legislative uh, events or changes or regulatory uh, changes, either Patent Office, Food and Drug Administration, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, frankly, one of the, your jobs as a private practitioner is to understand your client's business. And so what I do is, is try to do a client-based, in-depth review of their particular business needs and products and uh, research and development uh, areas so that you understand what particular clients are doing so you can understand that technology in, in some depth uh, to guide them properly. And so it's kind of a combination of those things, you know, apart from a case-specific development of the technology you need to know. So you recently left PTAB and entered private practice again. Um, can you talk about what led to this decision? Sure. Um, I, I grew up and worked in New York for all of my life. Uh, and, and, of course, my, my wife, uh, Professor Glover, also teaches at the school in New York. And the patent office, one of the things they did with the AIA is they created regional patent offices. And they have regional offices in... Uh, Detroit, Denver, Dallas, and uh, San Jose. Uh, and, of course, the home office is in Alexandria, Virginia. So there isn't one in New York or on the East Coast apart from Alexandria. So we moved to Alexandria, lived there for four years. Um, but as I said, I had a younger daughter in graduate school. Then I, my older daughter also went to graduate school. So I had two kids in graduate school. And my wife was commuting back and forth uh, from Virginia to New York. For a time, I commuted back and forth. And so uh, that was just wearing on me. And then this opportunity came up to work with some people who I had known for years before in private practice. And so I, I thought it was a good opportunity. And so I, I took it. What um, differences have you noticed between working as a PTAB judge and as a private patent attorney? Yes. Well, there are, there are a, f a few important differences, right? And first and foremost, you, you learn very quickly that it's the judge who controls the schedule. And so when you're a judge, you have a tremendous amount of control over the schedule and you exercise it. And, and so that's very different from being in private practice. A second important difference is that as a judge, of course, all the work, all the cases come to you. Uh, and when you're in private practice, uh, you're responsible for uh, generating the work and the cases and uh, supporting and representing your clients. And then I think the third biggest difference certainly in a patent practice, right? Patent practice is a federal practice, so you do a lot of traveling. And I have always done a lot of traveling in the private sector, but as a judge, very little. I only traveled when I was asked to, to do a conference or, or something like this, you know, for the board as a representative of the PTAB. Uh, but otherwise, it was relatively little traveling other than the commute back and forth uh, between New York and Alexandria. Uh, and for me, that was became a lot of traveling, unfortunately. But uh, so that's, I guess those are the, probably the biggest uh, differences, you, you know, but the substance of the work is very much the same, right? You, you're doing a, a critical analysis of patent validity issues based on, uh, you know, claim scope, scope of the prior art, you know, arguments of, you know, what uh, was valid or invalid, either is it anticipated, obvious, 
sufficient written description in the specification, those types of things. So the, the substance of the work is very much the same. And as a private practitioner, for example, I write opinions, I write briefs, trying to persuade the board to rule a particular way. Uh, and that's really not very much different than being a judge, analyzing the same facts and evidence and writing a decision or opinion uh, you know, as an objective fact finder. Um, so you mentioned that in 2012, AIA created PTAB and a few of these post-grant proceedings. To start off, could you give a basic overview of these different post-grant proceedings that the PTAB deals with? There, there are four different types of post-grant review proceedings that the AIA uh, ushered in, new, new proceedings. And don't forget that the Patent Office, I guess it was back in 1980, originally started with post-grant ex parte re-examination, uh, which was a more, limited, a more limited post-grant review. Then there was inter partes re-examination, in 1999, uh, <clears throat> where uh, the, you know, a party could challenge the validity of a patent and the patent owner could respond in front of the examiner uh, in those proceedings. And so the AIA was an outgrowth of those in an effort to essentially replace inter partes re-examination, first and foremost with inter partes review. So of the four new proceedings, inter partes review uh, is by far the most popular. Um, it is limited to a consideration of validity based on 102 or 103, anticipation or obviousness, and only based on patents or printed publications. So inter partes review, um, petitioners are not allowed to challenge uh, patent validity, for example, based on 101 subject matter eligibility grounds, uh, or under section 112, written description uh, or enablement issues, uh, or inequitable conduct, things like that. So, you, so it's a limited challenge, but any in an IPR, inter partes review, anyone who's not the patent owner can bring the challenge. So there's no technical standing requirement. Case or controversy standing is not required to file a petition. Um, and although, frankly, something like 80 to 85 percent of inter partes reviews are filed after a litigation has been filed by the patent owner against a defendant in federal district court. So, uh, so most in the large majority of cases, there is case or controversy standing um, anyway. Uh, but that's an inter partes review, and all of these proceedings are geared toward. There's an initial stage, as I said earlier, for the board to decide whether to institute. That's a six month, essentially a six month window, and if there's an decision to institute a review, a formal review of the validity of the patent claims, uh, there's then a 12-month window to complete discovery, oral hearing, and the board issues their written decision. Now, the statute provides that it's within the board's discretion to extend the 12-month period up to an additional six months, uh, but the board rarely does that. They almost always get the entire proceeding discovered, heard, and written up into a final decision within 12 months. So that's inter partes review. Post-grant review, which is kind of the second most uh, popular proceeding, is really, uh, it was meant to mimic or it was modeled on the European uh, opposition, European Patent Office opposition practice. And so post-grant reviews are limited to the nine-month window 
after the patent issues. And so it's early on in the patent life, right? But in a post-grant review, unlike inter partes review, any statutory basis of patentability uh, may be alleged. So patent eligibility, uh, the 112 issues typically uh, come up. They're probably the most common uh, issue that's raised in a post-grant review that's not raised in an inter partes review. Um, but again, as I say, it must be filed within nine months after issuance. And so for many, in many cases, if not, I think all the cases I ever had that were post-grant reviews, there was no co-pending litigation. And so you see far fewer post-grant review cases because there's uh, typically no commercial incentive at that point and or no litigation. Uh, and so only in those uh, businesses or industries where uh, patents are so important, for example, in biotechnology mm -hmm. and pharmaceuticals, where parties, as a matter of routine business, will monitor their competitors' patent portfolios. And if they see a patent that they believe is overbroad or invalid uh, and that they have a commercial interest in challenging, then they will file a post-grant review. And, of course, that only applies to AIA-based uh, patent applications, right? So it's it's not uh, IPRs, I should have said, apply to any any patent applications filed at any time, although that may get uh, challenged at the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. The post-grant reviews are limited to AIA patents. So, um, you know, the March, uh, March 16, 2013 date, so you'd have to have a filing date uh, after that. So, uh, but in any event, those are post-grant review proceedings. And otherwise, they follow the same uh, time frame and, and procedures and inter partes review, but as I say, there are far fewer of them. Uh, then next is what we call CBMRs, or uh, Covered Business Method Reviews, which are a specific type or subset of post-grant review. And by its name, Covered Business Method Review means it's limited to a certain type of business method patents, and it was mainly drafted um, for the benefit of the uh, financial in the finance industry. So it's limited to financial products or services, patents that cover financial products or services in the form of business method patents. Uh, and so in those types of cases, uh, where your petitioners are typically banks, insurance companies, uh, Wall Street, uh, occasional Wall Street uh, house, uh, but they're al almost always, or many times I should say, maybe not almost always, but many cases involve a Section 101 patent eligibility uh, challenge. Uh, but otherwise, it follows the same process as post-grant uh, reviews. And there is a case or controversy standing requirement, either a patent lawsuit having been filed or an allegation of patent infringement having been made uh, against the petitioner. Uh, and so, and I, I've heard a few of those cases, mainly in the biotech pharma space. And those are more interesting, as I said, because they typically raise more issues, uh, any statutory ground of validity. And finally, there's the last one is called derivation of invention, and that's really the successor to interferences. Although, again, it's a limited type, if you will, of patent interference, where essentially you have two competing inventors uh, for the same invention. And so there's not only a priority contest, who, who invented what first, uh, but derivation of invention also requires an allegation that one of the inventors derived that invention from the other. Uh, and so it's, it's a, a subset, if you will, of, of, of 
a traditional priority contest under the interference uh, practice rules. And so there have been very few uh, derivation cases even brought. And I think only just recently the first one was actually instituted, I believe, by the board. So uh, that's the fourth uh, type of proceeding, and it's, it's, it's a bit different. I didn't uh, actually sit on any derivation cases. but uh, So those are the four types of PTAB post-grant review proceedings. So in light of these four different proceedings, could you describe how patent practitioners have adapted their practices to PTAB post-grant proceedings? I know a lot of specialists have been generated to accommodate all these post-grant proceedings. Yeah, there's certainly been some of that. Um, uh, I mean, it, the enactment of the America Invents Act and changing our system to a first uh, inventor to file system, as well as implementing PTAB post-grant review proceedings was, you know, a really, really big change, probably the biggest statutory change in patent law since the 1952 Patent Act. Um, and other than arguably uh, the formation of the Federal Circuit in 1982, you know, it's probably the second most important thing to happen in patent law since 1952. So uh, everyone's had to adapt to it uh, as a matter of necessity. But particularly in the realm of patent litigation, because now if, if there's formal patent litigation, uh, defendants have to consider in every case whether they want to file an inter partes review. Uh, and so they a whole different slew of different strategic challenges in terms of timing, uh, a stop, issues of estoppel, uh, uh, as well as the, the business goals of the client. Uh, pharmaceutical industry cases tend to have different um, considerations for the litigants than, uh, let's say, a telecommunications uh, patent challenge. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, PTAB proceedings and the opportunity to potentially amend your claims in a PTAB proceeding uh, are all important factors that practitioners have adapted to and, and now consider as a routine part of, of any litigation. Uh, but it's also impacted, as I mentioned earlier, uh, deal due diligence, uh, freedom to operate analyses and opinions, uh, because the standard of proof in a PTAB proceeding is lower than a district court proceeding. A PTAB proceeding, uh, the burden of proof on the petitioner uh, at the end of the day is a preponderance of the evidence standard uh, with no presumption of patent validity even though, of course, the patent was issued by the patent office. <laughs> Whereas if, if you're in district court litigation and you're a defendant, your burden to prove patent invalidity is clear and convincing evidence, and that is, and, and that is based on a presumption that the patent claims uh, are valid because the patent office issued them after examination. So it is a lower standard, and we have had some cases where there are different or inconsistent results in determining whether patent claims are valid or invalid, uh, in the district court versus um, the PTAB. And so factors like that are, are quite important, um, even if it doesn't involve litigation, if you're considering whether to, for example, license a patent or challenge it first in the PTAB. Uh, uh, so those are the things, anyway, that, that come to mind. I'm sure there are some other uh, factors, but those are kind of the important ones. Have Has it changed... 
how patent practitioners write patent applications at all? You know, I, I, I think it has. Um, it's certainly put a spotlight on quality claim drafting and uh, patent specification drafting because uh, practitioners now understand that if, if they write a commercial, commercially valuable patent, that one day not only might it be uh, put under the microscope in patent litigation, it may also be put under the microscope by experienced PTAB judges. Uh, and, and so it puts a premium, I think, on uh, patent draftsmanship and quality. Uh, having said that, the business pressures and the realities are there's only so much time, effort, and money clients are willing to spend for that. And so there's always a balance there. But I, I do think, um, certainly in some industries, it, it has uh, provided an impetus to um, perhaps devote a little bit more resource to the patent drafting process. So talking about patent prosecution or writing a patent application and patent litigation, there is a decent discrepancy between um, the holdings of patentability between the patent office during the examination and the PTAB holdings, where the patent office issues most of the patents that are um, applied for, but PTAB um, has a high rate of turning over or holding a lot of patents invalid. Can you talk about that discrepancy a little bit more? Sure, sure. Well, first, I would challenge the premise that that the large majority of patents or patent claims are invalidated by the PTAB. I mean, the the PTAB from the beginning has always kept uh, very careful and specific data, which is available online on the uh, the PTAB website about. And so, when you look at uh, the total number of patent claims patents or patent claims that are that are challenged, right? So the universe of, of patent claims that are challenged. And then you compare that to how many patent claims are ultimately invalidated by the board at the end of the, one of these processes by a final written decision. You'll, you'll find that it's actually uh, a much lower percentage than people think. And of course, the PTAB has been criticized uh, for being that way. But the reality is, and for different reasons, parties settle, uh, patent owners decide uh, unilaterally to cancel claims that are weak claims uh, that are highlighted in a petition. And so there are lots of ways for claims or cases to be disposed of without the board finding claims invalid. And, and that happens quite a bit. And so if you look at the, the universe of claims challenged at the very beginning of the process and what happens at the end, I think you'll find the numbers are, are, are not so dramatic. Um, and it also, I believe, depends for whatever reason, on certain technology areas. So I know that, for example, in the pharmaceutical space, the PTAB did what's called an Orange Book study on patents that are listed in the FDA Orange Book that protect drug products because it's a fruitful source of litigation and dispute over those patents all the time. Um, and for, for patent claims, assuming they're instituted by the board, right? and of course many are not, but of those that actually get instituted for review, at the end of the process, I think the numbers are something like uh, fewer than 50% of the claims are actually invalidated by the board. And of course, the board can find some claims 
valid or, or not, not unpatentable and find other claims unpatentable depending on the claim scope. So um, it, I think it's hard to make that statement as a generalization. And I think every case is, of course, specific to its own facts, and you have to judge each case that way. So, uh, And I would also say, if you look at the affirmance rate of the board at the Federal Circuit, uh, it's almost 80% for complete affirmance, uh, particularly if you look at Rule 36 uh, summary affirmances. Uh, so they have a pretty high rate of success at the Federal Circuit as well. Well, that's definitely valuable input to consider. Um, so the USPTO recently introduced a pilot program allowing patent holders to amend challenge claims in post-grant proceedings. Um, can you talk about the purpose of this program and how you think it will affect post-grant proceedings? Sure. Uh, Meredith, when I joined the board in September 2013, motion to amend practice was already an issue. Uh, within the board and uh, outside the board. And there was, oh, there's been lots of criticism about that particular aspect of PTAB practice um, from almost from the very beginning. Uh, because now those statistics, if you look at them on the, on the PTAB website, show that for those parties, those patent owners who choose to file what's called a contingent motion to amend. So if it's contingent on the board finding claims unpatentable. So let's say you have a, a, a patent with claims 1 through 10, and claim 1 is your broadest independent claim. Uh, if the board finds uh, claim 1 unpatentable, then the patent owner is allowed to have a contingent motion limiting that claim or narrowing the claim, say with a particular limitation, and the board will consider that. Well, in those cases, whenever a patent owner, and there have only been a couple of hundred of, of the many thousands of cases filed where a patent owner has even asked for an amendment. But I, I believe the number is 92% of those motions were denied, and the board has uh, suffered a, a lot of criticism for that, and I think mainly it's due to the, the way they structured the process. And so the new director, Director uh, Andre Iancu, uh, one of his higher-level priorities coming in with regard to the PTAB was to align the amendment practice with what he characterizes as a more balanced um, and reliable approach. Uh, and so the, the goal, I think, I think his goal is to give patent owners a more balanced and a better opportunity to amend their claims with input from the PTAB judges. And so this, this new pilot program or proposal, which, by the way, has not been implemented yet, although comments have been received and uh, there was a lot of pushback on the time frame of what's being proposed because it, it was trying to squeeze it into the 12-month window uh, for when the, all the parties have to get their discovery done and motion practice and the judges have to issue their decisions. And now they're, this is layering on top of that uh, an entirely additional process where an initial motion to amend would get filed pretty early on in the process by the patent owner and the board would give non-binding preliminary uh, input as to what they thought of the proposed amendments. And, of course, the, peti uh, the, uh, the petitioner is allowed to respond to that. And then once the board issues this preliminary decision on the, uh, what they think of the proposed amendments, then the patent owner has a second chance to either make changes to the claim or to respond to the board's uh, comments, uh, all leading to a final 
decision the same way it would in a normal case. So it essentially layers on an additional process where the patent owner is given uh, two opportunities as of right uh, with some non-binding but of course important input from the board initially as to as to whether those claims would be successful, uh, whether the board would likely uh, be likely to grant those claims. And so that's the purpose of it, to, to create a better balance because I will say in that particular uh, process, the, the board, it, it's been lopsided against the patent owners and, and it probably shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. So the process needed to be changed. They need to try something new. This is, I think, a, a laudable effort to do that, although the timing pressure that it put on both the board and the parties is viewed by many, including myself, as so extreme as to, as to not necessarily uh, accomplish the goal. Uh, because it forces patent owners to make a very early decision on motions to amend, which can often be complicated and time-consuming. And I always advocated, even as a judge, for a process of amendments that was back-end loaded so that uh, you had the benefit of the board's final written decision as a patent owner. So you could see what the board thought based on a full record and a, and a time for a thoughtful analysis with input from both parties, and if they found any patent claims unpatentable, the reasons why, so a patent owner could uh, make an informed decision about whether they should then consider an amendment uh, to try to save unpatentable claims or uh, challenge the board's ruling uh, at the federal circuit on an appeal. And I think it would be much better if this process were at the back end, even if it was extended into the additional six-month window. Uh, but the board has always been resistant to do that. Uh, I don't know why they should be, because, as I say, patent claim amendment requests are relatively few, mm -hmm. uh, at least so far. So we'll we'll see. But that's kind of my take on, on the new process. Sure. It, it does seem that it is an attempt to kind of balance the scales, given the the lowered burden of proof and the no presumption of validity of the patent so that the patent owner does have some concession in that area. Well, that's right. And that's one, one of, I, I guess I should say, one of the issues uh, up for discussion is in, and as part of the comments that were submitted in response to this new proposed proceeding um, were to comment on who has what burden during the amendment process. Um, and because by statute, the, it's the petitioner's burden to prove unpatentability, although the Federal Circuit has ruled that it was not entirely clear if that applied to amended claims. Um, you know, having said that, the patent owner has statutory obligations to satisfy with a motion to amend. They, they're, they're only allowed one-for-one one substitution of claims. Uh, the claims can't be broader. You can't broaden your claims. You can only narrow them. And, of course, you must have support and specification for the claims. And so, and the board added by regulation an additional factor, which is uh, any proposed amendment needs to be responsive to a ground of unpatentability that the board instituted on. Uh, and if the patent owner satisfies those statutory obligations, then current guidance is the burden is the petitioners to prove why the amended claims that satisfy the statutory requirements shouldn't be uh, allowed. And uh, that was actually a change from the board's original 
um, view, which was that the burden was always on the patent owner. And so that's changed. I think that's a good change and, and helps rebalance the process. Mm -hmm. And I think the goal of having the two attempts with some input from the board conceptually is, is also a good change, but I just think the timing of it isn't practical the way in its current form. So I, I suspect that the, the board is taking a close look at that and may come up with a, a revised uh, plan. So how do you predict moving forward PTAB and post-grant proceedings will evolve? Well, you know, there's there's been an awful lot of change and um, input from stakeholders and response from the board over the last six years. Um, so I think it's, uh, and with a new director, of course, uh, we've talked about some of the changes. One of the other changes he implemented was to make sure that both the PTAB and the district courts apply the same claim construction standard in their decisions, which I think was also a very... Uh, wise and helpful um, decision because you were also getting cases with the board using the broadest reasonable interpretation standard for claim construction uh, would on occasion take a view of a claim that was broader than what a district court would uh, view the proper scope of the claim in a district court uh, traditional plain and ordinary meaning, ana uh, meaning analysis. Um, and that led to some real consternation and, and a, a few case results that were kind of hard to uh, rationalize or justify. And so I thought, so that, that was a change that the director could make on his own and did, and, and that's been good. I think that will, I think you'll start to see the fruits of that going forward, because that's a fairly recent change. Uh, I think the claim amendment practice will change. Um, I certainly hope and believe the timing will change, but I think the concept of giving a patent owner uh, a second opportunity in response to the board's initial uh, input will will be helpful, and you'll see more parties take advantage of that. Uh, the SAS Institute Supreme Court case that came down last year uh, also impacts directly the estoppel provisions, so you're, you're seeing in the district courts uh, kind of two things, greater willingness to apply estoppel to PTAB invalidity or unpatentability decisions, uh, because now there's there's clear guidance from the Supreme Court, PTAB, you have to institute on all grounds and all claims or, or none. And so that's what the PTAB's doing, which means they're considering all the invalidity issues. There's no problem, if you will, of partial estoppel. So estoppel will become, uh, has become uh, an even more important factor to assess and the district courts are giving it more credence. They're also showing, I think, a somewhat, the district courts are showing a somewhat increased willingness to stay patent litigation because they know the board is going to issue a final written decision that's appealable. So we'll go up to the federal circuit if necessary for a final decision on all the issues raised so that they won't have to be brought back to the district court um, by and large. Uh, so. I think you'll certainly see changes there. Uh, the covered business method patent reviews are scheduled to sunset in 2020, and I think they will sunset because they've just naturally uh, declined uh, pretty dramatically over the last two or three years compared to where they were at the beginning of the process. So I don't think you'll see that uh, those particular types of proceedings uh, renewed. Um, and you might see a somewhat of an increase in post-grant reviews as parties 
first of all, as the more recent patent applications get issued uh, and become subject to the nine-month window for consideration of a post-grant review, but also as parties, I think, get a little more comfortable with the board and the process, you know, what to expect mm -hmm. from the board. Do you think um, the sunsetting of the covered business review, the covered me business method review, has to do with um, some Supreme Court decisions in the area, such as Alice, or? I, I, I don't. I mean, of course, Alice and, and the whole issue of patent eligibility, you know, it, it continues to be debated, discussed, and uh, you know, implemented in different ways. But, but um, no, I think the covered business method reviews, again, for the, it was really for the benefit of the financial industry, and, for, and it's supposed to be limited to patents that cover financial products or services. And many of those cases have simply been raised by the financial uh, industry. The petitions have been, hundreds of petitions have been filed on, on many patents that were subject of many litigations. And so I think just because it was kind of a special carve-out, uh, I think it, people understood it would have a limited, uh, useful life. And I, I, just, I just think that's the, na the nature of, of what it was. It, it, mm -hmm. it was a, it's, only, it's limited to a very select slice of patent types, if you will. And, uh, and those patents that had become the most notorious, if you will, or most problematic for the f financial services industry you know, they took they took those patents on early in the process. And so now here you are, uh, you know, six years later, uh, and I think many of those cases have been brought. So, and, and of course, it's harder to get those patents issued as well, so. Just to wrap up, um, do you have any suggestions to people considering applying to be a PTAB judge? Well, I highly recommend it. The, the, the thing you need to know is, that it, it is very competitive, uh, and because it's a U.S. government agency, uh, they make their announcement on usajobs.gov, and so they only periodically announce for openings, usually once a year now, because as I said, the first four or five years, they recruited heavily, and they had sort of constant rolling announcements trying to recruit judges. Um, but now that they've, they've filled the ranks, so to speak, uh, due to just natural attrition from retirements mainly. Um, perhaps once a year they'll, they'll have a need for a few judges. I think recently, actually, they opened up a new job announcement and hired a, a larger group, so uh, of roughly 30 judges, or they're in the process of hiring 30 judges. So, um, But, but if, if you're qualified and interested and see an, uh, an announcement, it's a great opportunity, so I highly recommend it. Um, for experienced practitioners and you know just in terms of entering the law practice generally I mean I found it to be a tremendously satisfying uh, professional practice and of course in, in my case it's strictly limited to patents based on you know it's a technology based practice so it's always important to have a technology base but you've also had very successful uh, litigation practitioners without a technical background uh, uh, who have done very well uh, because they're good lawyers, you know. Uh, so anybody, if you will, can do it, uh, although having a technical background is certainly very helpful. Uh, 
And so for those uh, who, who fit that mold and think they might enjoy it, you can do the litigation side of it, which is very exciting. Uh, federal court-based, it's uh, really a great type of practice, but also the more traditional patent prosecution, counseling, opinion drafting practice is also um, alive and well and, and is a lot of fun also and important to clients. So, And you can do the practice as in-house counsel for corporations. You can do it as outside private practice. And as we discussed, you can try to be a PTAB judge or... I will say, as PTAB judges, quite a few of them were also, uh, my colleagues were also Federal Circuit law clerks along the way. So that was also, uh, I think, a nice qualification if, if, uh, if you had that on your resume. So. so for those who are considering going into these different areas of patent law, what advice would you give to them? Well, I think being very thoughtful and careful about your uh, summer opportunities, your clerkships. Um, one piece of advice in particular for those who think they would like the litigation aspect of the practice, patent litigation, trial work, uh, that it, it, it's a good opportunity coming out of school if you can go to work for the DA's office, the U.S. Attorney's office, corp counsel, anywhere where you can actually get trial experience as a young lawyer. That's a great advantage, and that doesn't matter what kind of case you're trying. Uh, it's the notion of developing your trial skills. Uh, I remember taking a trial advocacy class at Fordham many years ago, my last year, uh, with one of the uh, pr prosecutors who was an alum in, uh, uh, in Brooklyn in the Eastern District, and it was tremendously valuable uh, class and experience. And so the more experience you can get actually trying cases as a young lawyer, I think that's great experience and can set you apart even in the patent field, if, uh, if your goal is to get involved in litigation, patent litigation. Um, uh, writing, you know, is just crucial, as we, we've said. And so you have to constantly work on being a good drafter, and particularly for patent drafters. You know, claim drafting is very much an art, but also a, a technical uh, science and competence that uh, you have to master. Uh, so that, I guess that's, uh, that's my advice. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, and we are very grateful to have had this opportunity to hear about your experiences. Well, thank you, Meredith. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun to talk about, uh, you know, interesting work that you've done and experiences you've had, so I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. And it's, again, great to have a Fordham alum come in and hear about everything that he's done based on his experiences at the law school. Well, I, I hope the Fordham community uh, enjoys it. I'm certainly uh, blessed to have uh, been a graduate of Fordham Law School. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our Volume 29 Editor-in-Chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our Managing Editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to Meredith Miller and Mr. Brian Murphy. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FordhamIPLJ. You can also visit our website at FordhamIPLJ.org for our daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Poe. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.